Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Bjorn Lomborg is president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, a think tank dedicated to applying economic analysis, including cost-benefit analysis, we'll be hearing more about that, I'm sure, to the great issues of the day. He's the author of a number of books, including his 2001 bestseller, The Skeptical Environmentalist. Bjorn Lomborg's latest book, published just last year, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Today, the Biden administration has promised to place climate at the very center of all its deliberations. Bjorn Lomborg will tell us how the administration is doing. Bjorn, welcome back. Peter, it's great to be back. You're in Sweden. I am, yes. Yeah, so virtually. Virtu yes, and I'm in, I'm in California. So we are, I think that's pretty much, we're on opposite sides of the planet right now. Or at least, yeah, well, all right. one third or so, yeah. Two quotations. Here's, this is from the Biden plan, which is a campaign document that laid out Joe Biden's climate agenda. And as best I can tell the administration, now that he's in office, they're, they're sticking to this quite closely. Quote, from coastal towns to rural farms to urban centers, climate change poses an existential threat. Close quote. Bjorn Lomborg, writing recently in the New York Post, quote, Biden's climate alarmism is almost entirely wrong, close quote. Bjorn, will come to the details in just a moment, but opening explanation here, climate doesn't pose an existential threat? No. Look, climate change is a real problem, and it is something we should fix, but we also need to get, get a sense of proportion here. And if you tell people, this could be the end of the world for you and your loved ones and everybody else on the planet, which is essentially what the existential threat means. You are telling people they should spend everything and the kitchen sink on fixing this problem and not really bother about anything else before we've gotten this problem fixed. On the other hand, if you look at the gold standard, you might say, of climate science, which is the UN Climate Panel, and the many, many climate economists who've spent three decades or more trying to estimate what's the total problem of global warming. They said in their 2014 report that the impact of global warming by the 2070s, so about 50 years from now, half a century from now, would be equivalent to each one of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Remember, by then, the UN estimate that each one of us will be much richer on the medium uh, impact, probably about 350% as rich as we are today. So instead of being 350% as rich in 50 years, we will only be 336% as rich. Now, that's a problem because we could have been even richer, but it's certainly not the end of the world. And that's why we need to have this conversation. If we think it's the end of the world, we'll spend everything. If we realize it's one problem among many, we will start prioritizing just like we do with all other problems. Yes, we should spend smartly. We should not spend the whole pot on this problem. Listen, I want to come, you being you, I want to hear what we should be doing. But first, a couple of segments, if, we, if I could, in which I just want to present the Biden plan and hear your critique of the Biden plan. But I promise I reserve a, por a large portion of this conversation to, to, to the Lomborg plan. But we'll come to that second, if you don't mind. So first, the premises of the Biden plan. Again, I'm, uh, again, a couple of quotations. This one, again, I take directly from the Biden plan, a campaign document. Top climate experts have all concluded that human activities are estimated to have caused an approximate one degree centigrade rise in the Earth's global temperature to date. That's already happened. Quotation number two, President Biden's special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, quote, the scientists told us three years ago that we had 12 years to avert the worst consequences of climate crisis. We are now three years gone, so we have nine years left." Close quote. The premise here is that there exists a clearly defined, irrefutable scientific consensus, which extends not just to how bad the problem is, not just to what has already happened, but to the amount of time left to fix it. 
This is clear. It's well known by anyone with a mind open to the science. True or false? Well, I'd well, like to explain a little more than just uh, <laughs> right so you know fundamentally. Biden's right. We we expect about a one degree uh, temperature rise since the Industrial Revolution, and it is likely that much of that is because of global warming. So absolutely, uh, global warming is real and it's man-made, and it's causing quite a big part, probably not all of it, but a large part of the one degree uh, uh, centigrade rise. All right, that bit but of the premise, he, correct. Yes. All right. But then we come to, uh, and, and I saw this on, on, on CBS when, uh, uh, when John Kerry made that statement. And remember, it's the very same statement as AOC said back in 2018 when it first came out. We heard that we only have 12 years left and we gotta do everything if we're gonna fix this. And so we really can't be bothered about anything else. That's the one that John Kerry then three years later said, now we only have uh, nine years. That's an incredible misrepresentation of what the UN has actually done. So back in, uh, actually a little before uh, 2018, the UN was asked to produce a report that would tell us how do we get to the 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it sounds better in Celsius, so let's just go, right, go right, along right. with that. You're the 1.5 degrees centigrade, how do you get to that? And what they told us was, that's going to be incredibly hard. That's almost impossible. So if you wait, want wait, wait, to get- I, I just want how do we get, how do we lower the temperature by one point? Yes. So when you say get, yes. you, I see, all right, so, all right. So what they're expecting is if we don't do anything, we'll way overshoot, we'll get up to about seven degrees Fahrenheit or almost four degrees uh, Celsius. But if we are going to really cut a lot, not just in the US, not just in the rich world, but across the world, we can possibly just keep it to 1.5 degrees. That's basically the, the idea. Over how much if time? 1.5 yes, degrees? If it's 1.5 degrees. Uh, so, so there's a lot of conversation about, can you just jump over a little bit and then get down below? It's, it's hard to know. Uh, but let's right. say we try to keep it below 1.5 degrees for all time. So okay. we really have a very, very small margin uh, to deal with because we're already about one, uh, a little bit more than one degree. So what they say is, if you're going to do that, it will require immense effort. It will be almost impossible. So what they said was, you have to do an enormous amount by 2030. That was how the 12-year uh, time schedule came up. And that's how Kerry is talking about the nine-year time schedule. So he's right in that very technical sense. If you want to do something that's almost impossible, you have to do pretty much everything, even vastly, vastly expensive stuff. But remember, that's true for everything. everything. You know, If you want to build a, a bridge to China or to Europe, it's going to be fantastically expensive. And engineers, of course, can tell you how to do that. But they will probably also sort of in the PSA, but it's not a very good idea. It's fantastically expensive, or at least climate economists will do the same thing. And they've done that for the 1.5 degree uh, target. And it's fantastically expensive and will not achieve anything like the benefits compared to the cost that we're going to enter into. So that's why Kerry is simply saying, if we want to do this almost impossible thing, we have to do everything now. But the real question, the democratic question is, do we want to do everything possible to get below 1.5 degrees? Because remember, 1.5 degrees, uh, climate change is not the only challenge facing humanity, as I think everybody has realized with COVID. So we've got to ask ourselves, how much do we want to spend on climate compared to all the other problems? Then we're back to the conversation we just had before. If you think this is the end of the world, yeah, you're gonna spend everything on climate. If you realize it's one of many problems, you're gonna apportion a part of your budget to climate, you're gonna apportion it to a lot of other things. Just to recap, the UN did not say, we have 12 years until we all die in a giant ball of fire. Yeah. And they've actually been out saying that very explicitly afterwards because they, they feel very, very misunderstood on that point. Okay. The UN said, if you want to do something that's nearly impossible and probably unwise in the first place, then we probably have 12 years in which to do it. Yeah. But let's talk. That's what they really said. Okay. Second premise that I want to address here. Again, a few quotations from the Biden plan. The Trump administration allowed America to fall behind in the clean energy race for the future. The Trump administration abdicated leadership. President Trump recklessly threw away hard-won progress 
President Trump reversed America's progress on climate change. All those quotations come from the Biden plan. Against that, I did the best I could as a layman of limited intellectual scope. I did the best I could to try to figure out what actually happened during the four years of Trump. And as best I can work it out, greenhouse gas emissions in the United States fell by about 9%. Now, a lot of that is because of the economic slowdown during the pandemic. But even if you remove that, it looks as though because of the increase in natural gas during Trump, pre-pandemic, greenhouse gas emissions were beginning, were, were slightly down, as best I can tell. So what's the, what's the premise that everything, they, everything Trump did was a catastrophe, we're behind because of him, and yet as best I can tell, that's just not so. How do you evaluate that premise? So I think we need to recognize that climate and doing something about climate is immensely long-term impacts. So virtually nothing that Biden will do the next four years will have a significant measurable impact on, on certainly on temperatures, but probably even on emissions. And likewise, anything Trump did was not really going to matter much in those four years where he was uh, where he, when he was president. Remember. The fall that you talked about, and that is real, there has been a decline in, in emissions, uh, certainly in the last decade for the US. It's actually the, been the biggest decline of any nation in the world. You're also very big, so that's part of the reason. Right. But that's because you got fracking. And remember, fracking was not at all intended to cut carbon emissions. It was intended to make you know, energy cheap in the US. But a side effect was that gas became a lot cheaper than coal because gas emits about half as much CO2 as coal. A lot of coal-fired power stations went out of business, a lot switched to gas-powered production, and that's why we've seen a dramatic decline. It happened both on Obama's watch and on Trump's watch, and it's really not the benefit of, it's not the, you know, they can't claim credit for, for this either of them. So what we've seen is uh, Trump certainly gave up on climate and just said, we're not really gonna care all that much. And I think he was, clearly wrong in saying it's not really a problem. It is a problem. But I think we also need to recognize it is about how we long-term tackle this problem, not about what happened every any one year. All right. By the way, may I ask a question which I admit is tendentious? <laughs> uh, how has the United States done over the last decade by comparison with the European Union? Those are two that are roughly comparable in size, in wealth, in degree of technological advancement and so forth. Who's done best in greenhouse gas emissions? So again, that's a hard question. Because oh no, it's not. It, it, well, You're the better. US has reduced more. Okay. But that's also because you emit a lot more per person. So the oh. Europeans have reduced more in percent and you've reduced more in absolute terms. I think if you were to try to be reasonable, probably the Europeans have done slightly better, uh, but it's been much, much more costly. Uh, but part of that, of course, is because we don't have fracking, we don't have access to easy switch from uh, coal to gas. And part of it is because we insist as Europeans, and I'm also being a little facetious here, we insist on saying, if it's gonna be good, it has to hurt. Uh, so we don't like those cheap or even beneficial. Okay. All right. So Biden, the Biden administration, let's go through, if we may, three or four of the main initiatives, a couple of which they've already taken. And then again, I want to get back to the Lomborg plan. But here's the Biden plan. Here's what the administration has done and intends to do. So I'll name a few of these and you just give me a relatively brief evaluation. On his first day in office, President Biden rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement and revoked the federal permit for the Keystone oil pipeline. Paris Agreement, legally binding treaty on climate change signed by almost 200 nations. Trump got us out and now Biden has put us back in. What do you make of that? If, unfortunately, first, it's not legally binding. That's one of the reasons why Biden can do it and not actually send it to the Senate for confirmation where it would obviously fail. Uh, but secondly- well, it's not a, oh, oh, I see, I see, okay, all right. The, right. International law. Once we go in, we'll stick to it. We can't help ourselves. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, yes. And, and fair enough. But right. uh, and, and the second part is certainly on the current promises, 
Paris will not do very much. Paris will get us about 1% of the way to the 1.5 degrees target that we talked about. Uh, so if everyone does everything, it will reduce temperatures in 2100 by about 0 0.1 degree Fahrenheit. Uh, so really, you won't be able to notice that the fact that the US joined or not joined won't make much of a difference. Now, it could be a way that we can actually try to address this problem in the future. But for now, it's mostly a symbolic act. And Unfortunately, the same thing is also true for Keystone XL. Uh, even Obama's own uh, estimate showed that. Uh, they pointed out, look, it's not like the Canadians are not going to be selling 883,000 uh, barrels of oil every year anyway. They'll just get it out in another way. So the real question is, do you want to get it out safely, but also more cheaply so people will probably buy more of it? Or do you want to make it harder, but also less safe? That's really the question. It's a very small bit. Uh, player in the global emissions, but it's again a very powerful signal. And of course, that's the problem with much climate uh, policy. It's not so much about how much good it does; it's about how much good it makes us feel. All in other words, politics. <laughs> yes. All right. By the way, the Keystone Pipeline. Just to be clear about this for listeners, uh, pipeline to take gas oil from Canada down to the interior of the United States, crossing most of the United States to the southern United States to refineries and distribution centers in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and so forth. All right. The Green New Deal, or some revised version thereof, President Biden has said that he intends to spend, the numbers here are staggering, he intends to spend some $500 billion a year, or more than 10% of the entire federal budget on climate. This includes money, big money, to retrofit commercial buildings across the country, expand the railroad system, apparently on the idea that it's better for the climate if people take trains instead of drive their own cars, create new jobs in green industries, and expand subsidies on all kinds of so-called sustainable energy, including windmills, solar panels, and so on and so on. Spending, Bjorn, huge spending more than 10% of the entire federal budget. Bjorn? Well, there's a couple of things to note on it. First of all, uh, we there's a lot of things that we still don't know how he's gonna spend the whole uh, $500 billion, but certainly some of these things we know are not very good investments. So the retrofitting, the uh, weatherization of homes, we actually have the world's biggest study uh, done in the US for about 40,000 homes, showed that the cost was about twice as high as the benefits that you reap. So spending hundreds of billions of dollars, which we know that Biden's talking about over the next four years, on a policy that'll only give you 50 cents or less back on the dollar is a bad deal. Likewise, he wants to increase dramatically uh, the funding or the subsidies for electric cars. Again, electric cars being this icon of us doing something about global warming. Now, remember, electric cars, are actually good for the environment. They emit less CO2 on average, even if they charge from a coal-fired power plant, but not very much because you still have to build them. Much of their batteries are incredibly energy intensive, typically done in China with lots of coal-fired power. So the reality is that these cars will typically over their lifetime cut maybe 10 tons of CO2. Now, to most people that doesn't mean anything, but actually on the standard, marketplaces for CO2 emission in the US, you could cut a similar amount for $60 right now. So spending $7,500 to get that amount of subsidizing over 10 years is a really bad idea. Again, okay. it's not to say that the intention is not good, but it's a very, very poor incentive. It's one of the worst ways to try to cut carbon emissions. Uh, you mentioned uh, subsidies to uh, wind and solar. Typically, the, the reality is that we can get more wind and solar, but only if we keep paying for it, at least for a considerable amount of time. And so doing that is probably very ineffective as well. It certainly typically doesn't lead to very effective cuts of CO2. So there are lots of poor ways to spend that money. And at the same time, you mentioned uh, you know, uh, that he's gonna spend $500 billion a year. Just remember last year alone, the US debt, the public debt in the US rose by $4.5 trillion 
Going out and saying, hey, let's spend another $2 trillion on climate over the next four years is probably not the obvious implication of just having become $4.5 trillion poor. Right. Again, it is a way of saying maybe spending lots of money is not the right way to try to fix climate change along with everything else. One final aspect of the Biden New Deal, and then we come to the Lomborg deal, the Biden plan, excuse me. I'm quoting again from the Biden plan. President Biden will, quote, lead an effort <clears throat> to get every major country to ramp up the ambition of their domestic climate targets, close quote. The idea here is that the Western world, which the Biden plan admits, if this is in writing, accounts for only a little more than a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. That means the rest of the world, especially China, India, Latin America, account for the rest. And President Biden is going to get them to ramp up their ambitions. What do you make of that? Well, Peter, in some way, it, it emphasizes the whole idea of how we think about climate. Namely, and, and you say you don't quite know how to what, what to make of it. It's all about promises. That's the ambition part of it, right? It's about let's make sure that we make grander promises uh, next time all the global leaders are going to meet as in uh, the end of this year in Glasgow in England. Sorry, in United Kingdom, uh, because Scotland, it's not Scotland, uh, yes, in Scotland, uh, and and there they're going to make these fantastic promises. So they're going to say we'll cut a lot more than what you thought. But of course, the reality is it's not about how much you wish you'd cut; it's how much you actually cut. And there's two very important parts of this: as most people and most states who've made promises have not met those promises. You know, Canada famously uh, promised for the Kyoto deal that they were gonna you know, uh, cut, I believe it was 8%, they ended up 25% above. Uh, Bill Clinton back in 1992 promised uh, to, to get the US back uh, to 1992 levels in 2000. Uh, he totally shot that and when, when confronted with it, he'd said, well, it's because the economy has been going so well. And, and you can understand how policy Policymakers are saying, sure, we'll try and do something in, in a long time, and then we'll see if it happens. We'll see if it actually works out. Because actually cutting is very expensive and also very uncomfortable, uh, as we've seen with the COVID crisis. We've actually seen dramatic reductions during COVID. But I think we've also seen that most people don't want that, and they certainly don't want more of that. So it's very hard to imagine that you're going to be able to get countries to say, yeah, we'd like to reduce more if that means we'll have less economic ability, less economic growth, less of everything. That's just not attractive to most voters. Would you, would you, I'll say it because you try very hard and successfully to stay out of politics, but perhaps you could just nod or pull your earlobe if you think I'm right. The idea that President Biden can persuade China or India to surrender one iota of economic growth if China and India believe that their economic growth depends on burning coal is preposterous. Pull your earlobe if you agree. Well, I'll probably do it around here. I I think there's some truth to that. Uh, obviously, if we talk to the Chinese, if we talk to the Indians, and what has happened over the last 20 years is certainly in international circles, it's become almost untenable not to say that you want to cut carbon emissions. Uh, so I think there is some pull in each of these uh, 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 sovereignties. Uh, and, and also, let's not forget the rest of Southeast Asia and Africa, which is going right. to be an enormous player uh, towards growing, the right. second half of, of the century. All of these know that the West is telling them cut your carbon emissions. I totally agree with you. They're not going to cut most of it if it brings some economic benefit. Uh, that's obvious in China because the deal with the Chinese regime is we could get you uh, uh, economic growth if you then accept not to having political uh, influence. And of course, if you don't get them economic growth, it's going to be a much harder deal uh, to come uh, through with. In India, it's perhaps even more clear because Honestly, there's still, what, 300 million people who are in extreme poor, poverty. Right. And Modi and the rest of the Indian elite wants to pull them out. And right now, the best opportunity is coal. So again, there has to be an understanding that this is not mostly about talking. This is not mostly about, you know, cajoling people and nations into making grand promises in, in, uh, in Glasgow. It is about making sure 
that it is economically viable and preferably economically beneficial to switch to low carbon or zero carbon emissions. This brings us to the Lomborg plan. This is Hugh Bjorn in the New York Post just a couple of weeks ago. Quote, the last 30 years of climate policy have delivered high costs and rising, not shrinking, rising emissions. The only reliable ways to cut emissions have been recessions and the COVID-19 lockdowns, both of which are unpalatable. Unpalatable is a mild word for it. Expecting nations to stop using cheap energy won't succeed. You've already explained all of that. Here's what I'd like you to explain next. Your last sentence here. We need innovation. Innovation. What, how, what, what do you, we already have windmills and electric vehicles and Biden wants to spend more, give us more windmills and more yeah. electric vehicles. That's innovation, Bjorn. What's wrong with that? Not really. No, that's multiplying the stuff that we still, that we already know doesn't, doesn't work. work without these subsidies. So innovation is really the way that we as human beings and as civilization has fixed most problems. Remember, it's a very hard sell to go and tell people, I'm sorry, could you do with less? Could you turn off your lights? Could you have less lights? Could you drive less? Could you fly less? And, and we've tried it here under the pandemic. And of course, most people don't want that. Most people are looking very, very much forward to going back to being able to travel and to eat and to enjoy in, in many different ways. If, if you look at Los Angeles uh, back right. in the 1950s, terribly polluted place, mostly because of cars. It has a very specific uh, uh, sort of geographical location that traps all the uh, pollution from cars, makes it a terrible place to live if there's lots of pollution. Uh, so one obvious way, and I would say sort of the standard environmental way, would be to tell everyone in Los Angeles in the 1950s, I'm sorry, could you stop driving? Could you, you know, walk or bike instead? And of course, they would have gotten absolutely no uptake on that. But what did work out was innovation. So a guy innovated, and I'm making this a little too simple, right? But a guy innovated the catalytic converter in 1974. So it cost a couple hundred bucks. You put it on the tailpipe and it takes away most of that emission. So fundamentally, an innovation, yes, it was not costless, but it was fairly cheap. And you mandated every car got this. And it basically solved much of the problem. People drive much more in Los Angeles. There are many more people. Now, there's still other problems, and certainly traffic jams is one of them. Uh, but this basically fixed a very large part of the pollution problem in Los Angeles with innovation. So instead of telling people, do with less, which is never going to work, we should find a way to do with more, but emitting less. That was what the catalytic converter did for the Los Angeles problem, and, and honestly, for much air pollution around the world, we need the same approach to finding green and eventually zero carbon emitting energy technologies. So let me just, yeah, well, go ahead. Well, if I may, let me set up, um, I think I know where you're going with this. If not, just bat the question aside. So fracking was technical innovation. It what Within the oil and gas industry, the idea that I, as I understand it, there are two or three. First of all, there's a legal overhang. You have to understand sub, uh, subsurface mineral rights. There are all kinds of complicated aspects of, of, of the American legal and financial structure that went into fracking. But the technical aspect was they figured out how to drill here and then go horizontally a long way away. That's new. And then they also figured out how to put a kind of substance much made mostly of water into this pipe then put it under enormous and sudden pressure and cause microscopic fractures throughout the structure into which gas leaks that you can then pump out okay that turns out to be really remarkable and as you say it's led to a decrease in greenhouse gas emissions in this country for which the government cannot take credit because it wasn't directed by the government or mandated by the government. It was a bunch of largely guys, largely in Texas, after the old good old Texas oil and energy, what do we do next to get that stuff out of the ground? It was those guys. All right, I think you approve that kind of innovation, but I don't believe that's quite what you have in mind. You want government to play a role here in funding, in mandating, what? so. Fracking isn't good enough because it just happened by accident. You want somehow or other, this is the problem, Bjorn. You don't want the free market left alone. 
And yet innovation is always a surprise. In some ways, it's always accidental. What do you want us to do to yep. cause the kinds of innovations, the kinds of accidents to find the surprises that you say we need? Do you see what I'm after there? Yes, yes. All right, so, go ahead. So first, first of all, uh, the fracking revolution really was an Im impressive innovation. Uh, and as you say, it was incredibly good for US emissions uh, because you switch from coal to gas. One of the things that we should use this for is also to make sure that China gets it because China uses lots of uh, coal and very little uh, gas. If we could get fracking going in China, we could dramatically reduce the planet's biggest emitter and we could do so in a way that would actually be advantageous for China. So that's absolutely right. The second part is, it's not as simple. I, I know that there's there's different sort of versions of, of, of the fracking story. Uh, so the Breakthrough Institute has actually gone back and interviewed a lot of the participants in the fracking adventure. Uh, and for instance, uh, uh, Mitchell, uh, who is one of the uh, later on billionaire uh, oilmen who is credited for much of the uh, of the breakthrough of fracking, has very clearly confirmed that a very large part of what made this possible was that he got a lot of funding uh, from DARPA. So Mitchell has very clearly said he managed to do this because he got a, a substantial amount of funding from the federal government to do this. So the idea here is to say it was unprofitable to just go around and say, you know, I have a hunch that this might work. And of course, it didn't actually work for 10 years or more. If you don't have any money, most companies are just going to shut you down. Now, Mitchell was a very persistent man, but he also had the opportunity to keep trying because the government actually gave him funds. Remember, the point of giving people who are very tenacious and have this great idea that very likely will fail. Remember, we haven't heard about the hundreds of Mitchells yes, of course. tried other stuff and that didn't succeed. The point is giving them a little funding to actually see their grand ideas through often is very, very low cost. So the idea here is to say, there's a reason why a perfect market economy typically underinvests in innovation. This has been known widely for at least 20 or 30 years in economics. It's because most of the breakthroughs that you manage to get will only help humanity and will only really be big bestsellers once your patent has run out. So you will do this amazing breakthrough, then somebody else will do an amazing breakthrough, then somebody else will do an amazing breakthrough, and we'll all be much richer in 30 years. But of course, the guys who did the first breakthroughs have now had their patents run out. That's why you invest a lot less than what is actually worth for humanity. We recognize this in health uh, research, where we invest lots of money and a lot of people who, some of who will eventually go on to be Nobel laureates, who produce all these breakthroughs in health understanding that eventually makes it possible for private businesses uh, like the big, big pharmaceuticals to make breakthroughs that can actually make money. We don't spend trillions on these guys, but we do spend billions on them. And it's well-spent billions because it enables breakthroughs 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line. It's the same kind of argument that I'm making for energy. I'm not saying that we should go in and sponsor Solyndra. That was a terrible idea because we were basically sponsoring- Solyndra was the solar panel. Stuff we already know doesn't work. So instead of trying to do stuff we already know doesn't work, which is what all the subsidies that Biden is talking about to wind and solar, which is just basically churning out more of the stuff that still needs subsidies, it's about getting the next and the next generations of this. It's about subsidizing all the slightly crazy ideas, many of which are not going to work. So let me just give you one example. So Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000, right. he has this idea that he will uh, uh, essentially use gene-modified algae and grow them on the ocean surfaces far away from land where they'll soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Now, we know it can be done. We also know that it's hugely inefficient right now. But he's saying maybe he can innovate a way to make that incredibly cheap. If he could do that, we could keep our whole world as it is. We could keep running on oil, but that oil will just have been produced out there on the ocean surface, so it would be CO2 neutral. The amazing thing is if we have lots of people doing these ideas, we only have to give each one of them a little bit of support, not a whole lot, not cylindrical support, but get your idea to the stage where you can actually see whether it works or not. 
Those ideas are the ones that we should be supporting. And most of them are going to fail, but we just need a few of them to come through. And those are the ones that will power the 21st century. Price tag. What should the United States be spending? Joe so Biden says $500 billion a year on this, that, and the other, yeah, almost yes, all of which you no. disapprove of. What no, should we, we, what we, should we be spending? A, so we, we suggest that uh, somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2% of GDP. So you should be spent, and all nations should be spending this. Uh, so you should be spending, what, $20, $30 billion a year? Uh, so you should be spending a little part of the pot the, uh, the, that, uh, that President Biden has set aside for all these climate events. And that would be the main reason why we would actually find a solution that could make it possible for everyone to switch. Just think for a second, if Biden helped innovate by spending this money generating really smart ideas that ev then eventually turn out one of them to be incredibly beneficial for humankind, everyone would switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans, but the Chinese, the Indians, Africans, everybody else. And that's why Biden should be spending this, so America should be spending it, but Denmark and Sweden and everybody else should also be spending the same proportion of their GDP. It would be fairly small, not totally unsubstantial, but much, much smaller than most nations are now spending on their climate commitments. And it would have a much greater chance of actually fixing the problem in the long run. Bjorn, I have to say, conservative that I am, if you had said to me two years ago, we should be spending, we should add 20 or 30 billion in outlays to the federal budget on basic research. I think I would have resisted you. But now what you're saying is we can save 500 billion, we can save 450 billion or 470 billion a year. And I think Bjorn, you deserve the Nobel Prize. I want you to know I've swung around behind your argument thanks to, thanks to Joe Biden. Could we, I'd like to take you, now that I've got you and you're not in California, you won't be here until this lockdown ends. Let me take you through a couple of what I think of in terms of as almost special topics, things in the news, and I'd like to hear the way you think about them. The correct way to think about them, the Lomborg way to think about them, Texas, all right? Texas. Last month, there's a polar vortex. I didn't know polar vortexes existed until I read about them. They're swinging down to Texas. It inflicted record low temperatures on Texas. Temperatures so low that windmills froze. And it turns out that although Texas has been rub, run by Republicans for 25 years, 20% or more than 20% of the Texas power supply they had put into windmills. Windmills freeze. Grid essentially crashes. Hundreds of thousands of people are deprived of electricity for days. Here's what John Kerry says about that. Your instinct is to say this is the new ice age, but it's not. It is coming from global warming, which threatens all the normal weather, weather patterns, close quote. So, of course, the first question is what happened in Texas, something of which we're going to see a lot more because of climate change. And then the second question is, if we'd been following the Lomborg plan and innovating, how would what, what's the correct way to think about Texas and what we could do to prevent such a catastrophe in the future? Yeah. So the first part. Is, is a ploy that's very often heard, namely every weird thing is because of global warming. In the, in the interview that Kerry actually made, he was asked, is this global weirding? And he was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And of course, that, that sort of gives it away. This is not science anymore. We're just gonna call everything we don't like climate change. Look, all models, not just most models, all climate models show, not surprisingly, as temperatures rises, as CO2 rises, we're going to see fewer and fewer cold nights, fewer and fewer and cold days. You just can't make this argument into generally, we're also going to see more cold. No, that's not what climate change means. It's not what we're expecting. There is a tiny bit of sliver of an argument of the polar vortex. It's very, very unclear if it has any uh, uh, reality, but certainly overall, we're gonna see less cold, not more cold. It's, you know, this is not rocket science. And I think it somehow gives away the point of saying, you can't make everything you don't like into climate change. That's not how that works, at least if you want to keep being scientific. The second part, 
namely what should Texas do? I, I'm not gonna pretend to be a, an expert in Texas, but my understanding of this is we have to be very careful not to just blame one thing. As, as you well know, uh, wind turbines gave out, but so did gas turbines, even coal-fired power plants. There was uh, one blip in the nuclear power plant as well. I think the better argument, and, and this is again, in some sense, the way that the climate conversations become so polarized, everybody jump, just jumps in there and say, see, frozen uh, uh, wind turbines, or no, 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 see, the coal-fired power plants also have problems. We're missing the bigger picture, I think, which is, if you take a step back, what the problem in Texas really tells us is, as a society, we are very, very dependent on power 24-7. If we're gonna follow much of the climate alarmism and, and climate uh, uh, recommendations, we're gonna put many, many more things on the electric power. We're gonna have our cars being charged from electric power. We're gonna have most of our space heating from electric power. We're gonna to try to electrify almost everything. So we're gonna be even more dependent in the future. What that means is we really gotta make sure it's 24 seven power. And one of the problems with going solar and wind is that is the opposite of very sure that you have power 24 seven. Obviously there's no solar power at night. Obviously there's no wind power when the wind is not blowing. And so the reality, and this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to go very far with solar and wind is what are you gonna do on, on nights when the wind is not blowing? You have zero power. You just can't remember, people will then sort of facilely say, oh, it's batteries. Right now, the U.S. have batteries enough to store 14 seconds of U.S. power. So, and, and we need it to store not just for hours, but for days and possibly even seasons. That, that's just way outside of our ability right now. Again, we should research better batteries because that's going to make everything cheaper and make your cell phone better. But we should likewise also find ways to find baseload power. And that's very much about nuclear and hopefully fusion, maybe. And also uh, the Craig Venter uh, you know, argument, if we could get oil from the sea, that could also be one way. I wanna to come to nuclear in just a moment, but first, you, this is something you touched on earlier, electric vehicles, because they're in the news everywhere. I mean, as you know, as you well know, I live in Northern California and a neighbor just down, just two or three houses away from where I am now was in charge for a while of the Google, what is it called, Wayfair? Anyway, they're electric vehicle, driverless, all of this, okay. It's in the news here, but now it's in the news everywhere. A couple of quotations. Here's Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal, quote, the Biden administration will be piling a lot of chips, as if to say poker chips, on electric cars, the most popular and least useful way of fighting climate change. No matter how you fiddle the data, personal EVs are a single digit factor and belong low on any sane list of priorities, close quote. That's Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal. Now here's Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, announcing that GM will soon produce mostly electric vehicles. At GM, we believe that after one of the most difficult years in recent history, this moment will prove to be an inflection point. The moment when our world's reliance on gas and diesel powered vehicles will begin transitioning to an all-electric future. And GM intends to lead that change, not only to help accelerate the rollout of more electric vehicles, but to help ensure an equitable and inclusive transition to a net zero carbon future, to advance a safer world for all. On the one hand, electric vehicles low on any sane list of priorities, on the other, electric vehicles about to lead us into a more equitable and inclusive and safer world. Bjorn? Well, first of all, uh, it's absolutely true that they will have fairly little impact, certainly over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, they will eventually take over a significant part of personal mobility, and that's great. Yeah, there's lots of benefits to an electric car, uh, but only once they've gotten cheaper. And that, of course, goes to GM's point. She's basically saying, yes, I'd love to sell a lot of cars onto Biden, especially if he's going to give me $7,500 for every car I sell and even more, maybe. And, um, and, we, and we, get to re we get to replace the entire automotive uh, infrastructure in, in the country. That's a yes. lot of cars to yes. sell, right? Oh, obviously. All so right. look, there's, there's clearly a lot of private incentive if there's all this subsidy money out there. 
But we have to be realistic. Most, uh, most surveys show that the vast majority of cars sold in 2030 will still be not electric. Now, some of them will be hybrid because that's actually a very competitive way. And we've seen that already. The Prius, as we used to love, uh, you know, what, five, right. 10 years ago, is actually a really good idea because it's cheap and it actually lowers your cost. It's something where you can both go, go uh, a little ways and be very, very uh, energy uh, efficient, or you can go a long way and you can just gas it up at any gas station. So there's a good argument for going hybrid it's much, much harder to imagine that we're, most of us gonna go uh, all, uh, all electric for a variety of reasons, partly because it actually, it, it, it reduces your mobility because you will have to think about what am I gonna do when I reach the end of the battery. It's also very hard for the, what, 40% who don't live in single detached houses. It's a very, very rich world phenomenon and a very rich, people in rich world who are thinking about, oh, I have a house and I can just recharge it in my garage. What do all the people who live in apartments or in, in, in cities uh, do? That's much, much harder. And then finally, of course, it's very costly right now. Electric cars are typically much more costly. That's why you need the subsidy. And, and so it's extra sort of grating when you hear that this is gonna help the world's poor or just the poor in the US. The reality of course is, that most green subsidies go to the rich, but by far the biggest amount of subsidies from electric cars go to the very richest in the US because they're the only ones who could, you know, could consider buying an incredibly expensive Tesla and then get a lot of subsidy from both the American state and from the Californian uh, state and also get the chance to drive in the uh, carpool lane and everything. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. Uh, no, that You're touching a raw nerve because when I'm on the 101 in the crowded lane and I see all these hedge fund people whipping past in their Teslas, the last people on the planet who need subsidies are the people who are whipping past. All right, you get that. Can I just very, very briefly mention that people love to emphasize Norway uh, because in Norway, they're actually, uh, of new cars, more than half are now electric. And people are saying, see, they're leading the way. The reality is that Norway is giving so much subsidies, both in direct subsidies, in that they don't tax these cars, and that they get you know both carpool lanes, they get cheaper parking, they get cheaper uh, ferry, which is a big thing in Norway. So if you add all of that up, it turns out that a car that costs $30,000 you possibly get around $26,000 in subsidies. So sure, it makes sense for anyone who could possibly want an electric car to buy an electric car in Norway. But obviously most people who are not Norwegian, possibly even the Norwegians can't afford this in the long run. And also almost all of the people in Norway who buy an electric car already have a gasoline car, you know, for when they actually need to go somewhere. They actually need to drive away, but then they can, you know, do the shopping and feel virtuous and Got the electric it. car. Got it. Does that feel good for a Dane to, to just put a little Bash them a little bit? Yes, we're annoyed that they got all the- All right, Which okay. Of course, is another thing, right? Let's just think about Norway. The reason why they can afford all this is because they get rich in oil. On the oil, the North Sea oil. Um, nuclear power. This is from the State of the Planet, a study published by Columbia University. And as you know, I'm such an expert that I just tripped across this thing online. Quote, the U.S. has 95 nuclear reactors in operation, but only one new reactor has been started up in the last 20 years. Over 100 new nuclear reactors are being planned in other countries, and 300 more are proposed with China, India, and Russia leading the way. Close quote. Okay. If the United States, I put this to you, if the United States has indeed surrendered the lead in the race for clean energy, as the Biden plan argues, it has done so above all in nuclear energy. Is that, is that not, I mean, if the Chinese are going to be building, as I read someplace else, there's some thought that the Chinese will build 100 nuclear plants over the next decade or so. And you know what? By the time they get to plant 15 or 16, they'll be pretty good at it. Hmm. They, will have, they will have discovered you, you do something repeatedly and you pl pl play some intellectual effort behind it, 
you'll make breakthroughs. There will be innovation, right? Yes, that's certainly what we used to think. We didn't actually see that happening uh, with uh, nuclear power. So nuclear power is a very funny uh, or a very special uh, sort of instance because what happened uh, in the 60s, 70s uh, and 80s were that nuclear power, while you built more and more of them, they all were very, very specialized. They all got tailored to that particular place and they got more and more expensive, which is one of the main reasons I actually think we stop using uh, nuclear in, in the West. What we have to recognize is that although these numbers sound impressive, remember everything is very, very large in, in China. So 100 nuclear power plants are not uh, actually all that much. And by most estimates, nuclear power is not gonna be a dramatic uh, player in the future of, 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 of energy so far. But you're absolutely right to say nuclear power is something we should be investigating because it gives us baseload power. So it gives us the stuff that Texas was missing. Right. Uh, and it has the possibility of doing so very, very cheaply. It is not cheap right now. Uh, one of the arguments is that it was actually deliberately made so extra safe that it ended up being incredibly expensive. But obviously, it's not an argument to say, well, let's make it a little less uh, safe uh, to make it cheaper. That's right. just never going to happen. Right. Okay. But what a lot of people are arguing is that we're right now in the third generation nuclear power plant. A lot of people, like Bill Gates and many others, are investigating fourth generation nuclear power, which promises to be a lot safer, possibly inherently safe, and much, much cheaper. Let me go through, because again, just Googling around on this, it turns out that there are several dozen funded private ventures. As best I can tell, they're privately funded. The Bill Gates Foundation is funding one or two. I guess... In, what I have in my head is, of course, every American has seen, I suppose people around the world have seen this. Every American has seen old footage of nuclear explosions, test explosions. Everybody's conscious of Hiroshima. We have that in our minds when we think, hear the word nuclear. Chernobyl in this country, Three Mile Island, nobody died at Three Mile Island. Uh, but still, it scared people, the, the accident in Japan. All right. It turns out, so goes the argument, which I test by placing it before you, that these new technologies, apparently there is some prospect that they will really be different. There's a natrium reactor. This is apparently what Bill Gates is investing in that will use sodium as a coolant instead of water. It won't have to be under pressure the way water is under pressure. Apparently keeping the water under pressure adds enormous complexity and expense to building a plant. Don't need to do that anymore. There's a small modular light water reactor. I don't under, I, I can say these words, but this is why I'm putting it to you because I don't know the field at all. But it, that would occupy the space of only 1% of a conventional reactor. And while we're talking about small reactors, there are also designs now for micro reactors that would fit in the back of an 18 wheeler. And of course, I'm thinking to myself, Texas could have used a few of those 18 wheelers just a few weeks ago. So. I'm a layman, but doesn't that look like a place where some of your 20 or 30 billion a year ought to go? Oh. If we can crack the nuclear problem and make it genuinely safe, we already know it can be tremendously inexpensive. I, I guess, isn't that in some way the technological grail for, that we ought to be seeking? Or am I becoming too excited about one technology. Yes, I think I think that's the that's the real problem because if you remember back in time, we've had you know George Bush loved uh, hydrogen cars. Biden obviously loves solar and wind. There's always this favorite technology, and 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 the reality is, of course, we don't know which place the breakthrough is going to come. But absolutely, we should be spending money on nuclear. Uh, let me just on, on the nuclear bit. Although we've had Chernobyl and we've had Fukushima and we've had Three Mile Island and many other uh, uh, smaller problems, actually very, very few people have died from nuclear power. So in, in, in the biggest survey of, of all the deaths that we've had from different energy forms, nuclear is one of the least deadly. Of course, remember, coal is by far the most deadly because it literally kills hundreds of thousands, possibly even a million people a year by air pollution. So this is not rocket science. Nuclear power is very safe. Now we should make it even safer. And if we can make it so safe 
that it physically can't make uh, you know, a big problem, that would be wonderful. But the primary problem with, with nuclear is not safety, although there is a perception problem in some ways. The primary problem is cost. So most of the new nuclear power plants that we built in the West are so expensive and come in so high over cost that they are vastly more expensive than fossil fuels and vastly more expensive than most subsidized uh, green energy. That's not sustainable. And that's why we need to find ways to technologically engineer that. And that's actually what Gates and these other guys are saying. Let's find ways that we can make this much cheaper. I have great hopes for this, but I wouldn't place all my eggs in that. So, so one question, it's my understanding at a very fuzzy level that some large component of the expense arises from the regulatory overhang, which in turn arises from it's more than a perception problem. I mean, Chernobyl was a horrifying event. It's that people are responding to something real. But if you can make them smaller, if you can make them safer, that is to say the technology itself isn't, isn't even now all that expensive. It's the amount that we pay to keep ourselves from being terrified by it that makes it too expensive in some proportion. Is there something to that or am I mistaken? Well, there's some something to that. Just remember the, the EU did a, a survey over Chernobyl and they estimated together with the International en uh, Atomic Energy Agency and several other institutions, World Health Organization, that the total number of dead across all of the world from Chernobyl were less than 200. So I think I think it's it's worthwhile to point Chernobyl. out that people have this this enormous sense of, of of devastation. Yes, it was a problem, but remember there are lots and lots of people killed from uh, air pollution, from for instance coal fire power every year. Uh, but 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 again, back to your question. Yes, it is partly that we have regulated this very very harshly, and I as I mentioned, I don't think we're going to get away from that. But if you could, and, and you alluded to that, if you could build the same power plant over and over, you can build it very safely and cheaply. Whereas what we're doing right now is we build a new kind of power plant every time, very safely, but incredibly expensively. So if we could get to those 18-wheel uh, trucks uh, or you know, some sort of modular design, and we could just churn out lots of them, they could be incredibly safe and fairly cheap. We still don't know whether they can be incredibly cheap. And I think that's put where, where a lot of the innovation comes in. If you can make this in a modular way that is you know, inherently safe, very cheap, you could get everyone to use it and we'd be done. We wouldn't have we'd to talk done. about climate change anymore we'd because we just have this incredibly cheap power source that everyone would use everywhere. All right. Bjorn, a couple of final questions. Climate change is real. I'm summarizing Bjorn to Bjorn, but doesn't pose an existential crisis. And nearly all the spending that Joe Biden proposes, nearly all of that $500 billion a year will be wasted. At least it may have its political purposes. If you're Joe Biden, you may say, I need to pay off this interest group and that interest group. But from the point of view of actually affecting the climate, it's wasted. Joe Biden probably knows that. And if Joe Biden doesn't know that, he has highly intelligent, well-read people throughout his administration who do. How is it the, that Bjorn Lomborg, sitting in Sweden of all places, is the one voice, why don't, why doesn't every intelligent person, every intelligent, well-read person who feel strongly about climate change, and there are a lot of people who fit just that description in the Biden administration, why don't they see things the way you see things? So I think there's a number of different reasons. Part of it is that if you really believe we only have nine years left, we've got to amp it up to 11, we got to do everything we possibly can, and if we can get our hands on $500 billion, we're going to spend it. And yes, it might not do as much good as we could have done elsewhere, but this is the overarching problem, so let's try and get going. I think a lot of people, uh, and certainly a lot of the people I debate, really have that urgency, you know, the meteor is hurtling towards Earth and we just got to do something, even if it is, you know, sending Bruce Willis up there. So the, the idea here in some way is you're just trying to do something at least to get this done. I think there's also another and more sinister part of this. 
if you spend $500 billion, you make a lot of people rich. Yes, you so do. obviously a lot of people are championing this. I, I often find it very hilarious how, you know, when, when you went to the uh, Paris uh, summit, uh, you know, there were, there were ads everywhere from, from all the wind turbine companies and solar panel companies saying, make a strong statement for climate. What they were uh, obviously also saying was, get us lots of contracts. And, and you know, if you're a CEO of that company, of course you should be pushing for that. And then there's also this understanding, you know, even John Kerry said that, and you mentioned that at the, at the beginning of, of, of our program here, he recognizes even if the U.S. totally stops emitting, it's not really going to matter because most of this is about the rest of the world. There's a sense in which if we do everything in the U.S., we can show everyone else that they should also do it. It's, of course, fallacious because, remember, the Germans thought the same way. And what they basically now have is an incredibly expensive uh, uh, program, the uh, Energiewende, as they call it, uh, which costs consumers at least 30 billion euros every year in higher uh, uh, cost for their energy. And they have basically not succeeded in reducing their emissions because, wow, surprise, when the wind is not blowing, you have to fire up your coal-fired power plant. There's a lot of other things wrong with Germany. But the fundamental point is, if you try to show people Here's how to do it, and then do it really, really expensively and really, really badly. You're not a you know, picture of admiration for everyone else. Everybody says, oh, let's not do like Germany. And people will do the same thing for the US. But I think for most people, when you start off this immense project of saving the planet, you just got to do everything you can, and everybody will love the US when we put up more solar panels. And unfortunately, I'm the guy who says, well, no, and it, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a party poop in that way, but we need someone to say it in order for us to get to the policies that will actually work. They're not going to be as flashy, but they'll be much more useful. Bjorn, is this a correct conclusion from all that you've said? There is one gift the United States could give the world that would matter, just one, innovation. Is that correct? Yes. If you take one thing away, let's make sure that the U.S. helps the world innovate that technology or the few technologies that will power the rest of the 21st century cheaply and with very little or no CO2. That's what you can do. And of course, I would like, because I don't think it's just about the U.S., we should ask all nations to do that because it's going to be all of humanity's benefit if we innovate that even if it ends up being a Chinese or a Nigerian innovation, we'll all benefit from that innovation that will help us become carbon neutral and have access to cheap energy. But by all means, you know, it fires people up a little bit more if you just say America should fi fix this. Well, you know, I'm just thinking, here's what we've given the world in the last quarter century. Facebook, yes. Twitter, Google, maybe nuclear energy, for the whole world would not be such a bad, it might actually be a step up, maybe. All right. Um, last question, Bjorn. Here's the title again of your most recent book, that, which you published just last year, False Alarm. False Alarm, how climate change panic costs us trillions, hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. Since you published that book, the European Union has suffered the shock of Brexit, the British exit, the entire planet has suffered a pandemic. And here in the United States, Trump is out and Biden is in. Are you hopeful? Since you published that book, have we become more or less susceptible to climate panic? I think we've become more susceptible because, you know, when Trump was in, the problem was really that the U.S. was not caring enough about climate change because he didn't care at all. Now the problem is probably that you care too much, or at least that you care in a way that's incredibly ineffective. And you're likely to lead much of the world down that path. Certainly the European uh, Union is willing, uh, the U.K. is willing, uh, and a lot of rich countries are willing to play in on this idea that we're all going to make you know, uh, grand promises and kumbaya at the end of this year, and then you know, we'll figure out later what to do. But one other thing happened, as you also mentioned, we had a grand pandemic. And what that did was it reduced global emissions somewhere between 4 and 6%. The UN tells us we need to cut this emission 
every year by 7.6% if we're gonna live up to our Paris Agreement. So just to give you a sense of proportion, that means last year we should have had a bigger, nastier pandemic, or at least the economic effects of that, you know, the shutdown that would have reduced emissions even more around the world. But this year, we need two of those big shutdowns because we need 7.6% and then 7.6% above. In 2022, we need three shutdowns like we had in 2020. And by 2030, we need 11 of those. I think what you can see where I'm heading. This simply emphasizes that the current way that people are just sort of casually suggesting that we can dramatically reduce our carbon emissions by investing in some electric cars is, is simply misguided. And unfortunately, it'll actually lead us to just spend lots of money and actually not having found the solution. This is again, Los Angeles in the 1950s. Don't go around and tell everyone to bike instead. Spend the money on innovation. Bjorn Lomborg of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and the Hoover Institution, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.